The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. I want you to take an imagination journey with me back to the 1800s. We're no longer on Long Island, and we're in Birmingham, England. It's the late evening about this time, and the storm is actually worse than it is tonight. The famous missionary, Hudson Taylor, is supposed to speak in a small room. What he wants to tell them is about his trip that he took a few years ago to China. The hostess that's walking him towards the room tells him that she doesn't think he should speak tonight because not, people, not many people are traveling since uh, the weather is so bad. Hudson Taylor replies to her, but I must go, even if there's no one else there but the doorkeeper. As it turns out, the hostess was right, and only a few people showed up, less than a dozen. Hudson Taylor was faithful, and he spoke to them, and he told them about how the people in China were desperate for the gospel, and how he saw, saw souls perishing for knowledge that the people in England had. Through the Lord's faithfulness, through Hudson Taylor, half of the dozen that were there either became missionaries or they gave their uh, children as missionaries. And then the other half financially supported the mission for years to come. Hudson Taylor's organization was then responsible for about 800 missionaries then going to China who was faithful to actually establish 125 schools. Now come back to me here in August 2019. And my name is Ray. And if you've been here with us, you know that we've been studying the fruit of the Spirit over the past few weeks. Each one of us has taken a different fruit of the Spirit and we've looked at it and we've had an opportunity to study how the genuine fruit of the Spirit looks and how the Holy Spirit produces that fruit in the life of a Christian. All right? So today we're actually going to look at the text that we've been looking at for the past few weeks, Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to take a read of the entire passage. Now I know it's late, guys, so please, if you stay with me just through the 26 chap- or verses here, then you'll be able to follow along as <laughs> I refer to things in the future, all right, through the sermon, all right? So, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All right? About one-fifth of the way. You were running well. Who hindered you? You are from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. 
and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Almost there, halfway. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. For if you are led by the Spirit, you are not led by the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I've warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, envying one another. Right. Uh, Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity tonight uh, to grow me in this way. Be with me now in my weakness as I share your word. Um, and show your strength. Um, Help us to learn how your faithfulness is a blessing to us and to learn how you produce faithfulness in us through Christ and through the power of your Holy Spirit. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, our focus for tonight will be the one little word in verse 22, chapter uh, 5. Faithfulness. Okay? We took the time to read the entire chapter because I wanted to show you how faithfulness first comes through Christ setting us free in verse 1 and then relates to how it is produced in us through the Spirit in verse 23 through 25. Okay? So let's start with the word faithfulness. Until I began my study, I don't think I realized how broad the word faithfulness was. So I decided to look up the Greek word so that we could understand the meaning within its context. All right? Now, the Greek word used here is spelled P-I-S-T-I-S, and that's pronounced pestis. Now, within the context of the verse, pestis means fidelity, or it means trustworthiness. It's representative here of the character of one who can be relied on. Think of someone who keeps his promises, his or her promises, and is found to be trustworthy or dependable to carry out his or her responsibilities. Can you think of someone like that? If someone to be, were to be asked about you, do you think that they would say that about you? Think of you about, with regards to fidelity and trustworthiness? Now, through my study, I developed a greater understanding of just how much of a fruit of the Spirit faithfulness is from God. So I thought that the most appropriate way for us to look at this fruit of the Spirit would be first to look at how it relates to God and then look at how He produces it in our life through Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. All right? But before we get started, I just want to make clear that 
faithfulness is a broad term. Okay, so the way that we're looking at uh, faithfulness tonight is very specific. Theoretically, a person can be trustworthy and reliable in a lot of different ways. Okay, but the specific faithfulness that we're focused on tonight refers to the trustworthiness and reliability of carrying out one's responsibilities as a disciple of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and for the glory of God. Okay, if you're missing any one of those three things, then we are not talking about faithfulness as it is referred to here in Galatians 5. All right? So, let's begin, and you guys can play along with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Good, let there be light. And do you know what happened? There was light. Sometime thereafter, a few verses down, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness. And do you know what happened? Did he make man in his own image and his likeness? Yes. Okay. Um, So the point is that um, as he created man, they were supposed to take uh, a role on earth and dominion over the other creatures and be a representative of God. Okay? Uh, God continued to do so with the vegetation. He separated the night from the day and everything living in the sea and created everything living in the sea and created the animals living on the earth. The point that I'm trying to make is that from the very beginning of the Bible, we're introduced to God as a God who does what he says he will do. He's a God that keeps his word. Okay? This is the general standard from Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. But until we get to chapter 3, where we see that mankind comes to experience the first challenge to God's trustworthiness and his reliability. Okay? It's when Eve is in the garden and the serpent says to her while she was alone, did God actually say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden. And then when she responds, the serpent says, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay? So the first challenge is that we see in the book of Genesis on the God's character for truthfulness is where God said, If you eat from the tree, you will surely die. The serpent says... If you eat from the tree, you will not surely die. All right? And you know how the story goes. Eve eats from the tree. She convinces Adam to do the same. And then this leads to the fall of mankind. All right? Adam and Eve were eventually expelled from the garden. And all of their descendants, including you and I, would then inherit their sinful nature and the resulting fear and consequence of death. All right? I want you to hear what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, about what the life is like of a Gentile before they know the truth of God's faithfulness. Okay? And this is what it's like for all of us before we know God and that he is faithful. All right? Ephesians 2.12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay? Now, I want you to look at what he says in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. All right? The idea here from both of those chapters is that when a person doesn't know God or know that he is faithful, they have no objective reference to truth or certainty by which to anchor any of their concerns. A more simple way to say this is that if you don't know God is faithful, you cannot have any lasting or true peace. Okay? For the one who doesn't know God, death can arrive at any time for them. And they have no idea what will happen when they arrive or when death arrives. On top of that, because sin causes man to be so unpredictable and unfaithful in this world, they don't know who they can trust or who they can rely on. Okay? So the only logical thing for them to do then, since they can't trust in anything uh, that they know of 100%, is to escape from the constant nagging and fearing of death, and fear of death by pursuing anything that will bring them comfort in the meantime. On the other hand, when we know God and when we know of his faithfulness, it gives us hope and it gives us security and it gives us peace. It gives us freedom in a world where sin and death still control many of us or many people as slave masters as a consequence of the fall. Gene, can you put up the first picture for me? Can anyone tell me what that is? Okay. Good job. Good job. Um, Let's see. Can anyone tell me anything special about what's going on here? Well, just what you see. (laughs) Okay. It's all gas. All right. What is that? It's uh, a, what would you say, a crater? Okay, and you? It's a hurricane? A giant storm. Okay, got it. Um, can you show us the next picture? All right, this is what it is, and it is actually a giant hurricane, a giant storm. All right? It's a giant spinning storm in Jupiter's atmosphere. It's like a hurricane on Earth, like she said. Um, do you know what like, the size of it is? Can any of you guess? How big is it? How much bigger than Earth? What is it? Four Earths? Well, more than two times the size of Earth. Okay? And who can guess how fast the winds are in this particular storm? If you had to take a guess. How many? Close? What did you say? Not so high. He was closer. 
No, who said 200? You were the closest. All right, good job. 270 miles per hour. And how long do you think this storm has been spinning? Just spinning. <laughs> One week. Good. What do you think? I see a smile. What do you think? What is it? A month. Good call. What do you think? Huh? Since the planet was created. Okay, from the beginning. All right, so um, it was continuously observed since about 1830, this one storm. Okay? Um, Now, I told you it's bigger than or twice the size um, of the Earth, more than twice the size of the Earth. All right? On our planet, without knowing God, sometimes the unfaithfulness in the world can seem to be spinning around us just like the red spot does on Jupiter. But in God's kindness, he gives us the gift of himself who is stable and above all things at all times. Great is God's faithfulness, and he is trustworthy and faithful to keep us even in the deadliest of life storms or the unfaithfulness of the world. Okay? Uh, James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Even as the Lord stays faithful above the unfaithfulness of the earth, he then, when we come to him, produces faithfulness in us so that we can be good representatives of him while on earth, pointing people back to him and his faithfulness as well. All right, so let's look at a good example of this that we've been learning about for the past few months. So within the past few months, we've been learning about Joseph. All right, most of the time when we learn about Joseph, we hear about his integrity, we hear about um, his faithfulness through difficult circumstances. Now, as you know, Joseph is the son of Jacob and Rachel. He was the second to last son, And he was also Jacob's favorite son. Now, his ten older half-brothers were not too pleased about that, especially when Joseph received the coat of many colors from his father. And then he told them about his dream that they would most likely bow in front of him in the future. So, they planned to kill him, but they settled on selling him into slavery. All right? When they sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites, he was about 17 years old. All right. What I want you to think about, though, because I want to focus on God's faithfulness, is what Joseph might have known at that point when he was 17 and going into slavery. Okay. So, all throughout the Joseph story, we we normally hear about the little things that Joseph did and how he remained faithful, right, wherever he went to attempt to honor the Lord, but. What do you think he was thinking as he was 17 and he was sold into slavery? You've been betrayed by maybe one or two people, but try your 10 older brothers. How do you think that feels? Right? The unfaithfulness of his older brothers who are supposed to be caring for him. Right? So now I want you to uh, think about what he was thinking or what he knew. Joseph's great-grandfather was... Trivia. Starts with an A. All right, good job. (laughs) Abraham, the one whom the Lord promised the son, land, and to be with him wherever he went. And the Lord was. The Lord told Abraham that he would destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, 
And then he did. The Lord promised Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age, and he provided that for them. The Lord promised that he would be with Isaac, Joseph's grandfather, and he was with him throughout his entire life. The Lord promised Joseph's father, Jacob, that he would be with him, and he was also with him through his entire life. I want you to look at one particular circumstance where uh, Jacob or Jacob was meeting his brother Esau, and if you remember, uh, Jacob cheated Esau a long time ago, and now as he was going back to see him, he was afraid of what Esau was going to do. Okay? Um, the next verse is... Uh, and Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. In front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph, last of all. He himself went on before him, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And, then, and when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah, likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. And Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have found my brother. I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Then he urged him to take it. My point here in showing you this is that Joseph himself, he was there as one of the last ones with his mom as uh, Jacob met his brother. And as Jacob was explaining to Esau how the Lord had shown him favor, how he had been faithful to him throughout his life, how he had been gracious to him, okay? Then, now think about as Joseph goes into uh, slavery at 17. I'm showing you this because I want you to understand that Joseph most likely had a solid grasp of God's faithfulness to his forefathers, and therefore the spinning storm of his brother's unfaithfulness of selling him to slavery was not his demise. He was able to go in and be faithful, and we see him doing those, uh, being faithful in small ways, like being a worker to his boss, a good worker or a faithful worker to his boss, um, Potiphar, or his master, Potiphar. He was also faithful in respecting Potiphar's marriage vows when his wife tried to seduce him. Then, as he went to prison... He was faithful as a worker and a boss as he asked the cupbearer and the baker why were they so downcast. And then as he was in service of Pharaoh, he was faithful throughout the entire time. Okay? Overall, what I want to show you here was that the Lord was faithful and Joseph saw that faithfulness and the Lord was able to produce that faithfulness in him And we can tell that the Lord used the Spirit to do so because every time the Lord talked about uh, Joseph in a new place, it said that the Lord was with him. Okay? So, now, 
God's faithfulness brings him glory because he stands alone as the standard of constant faithfulness while the world is unfaithful. All right? God's greatest example is what I want to show you now. God's greatest example of faithfulness is Christ. And the reason for this is twofold. On one hand, Jesus is God's ultimate example of faithfulness because it is through Jesus that we see the magnitude of God's faithfulness to us. And then, from the opposite direction, Jesus also shows God's faithfulness or his greatest example of faithfulness because Jesus represents the model for how perfect faithfulness should look from us to God. Okay? So God's example of faithfulness, both from him and from us, meets at the point of Christ. All right? So first, what does it mean that uh, Christ shows the magnitude of God's faithfulness to us? Well, I showed you an example of the great red spot and showed you how God stands above everything, right? He is reliable and trustworthy above all things. But then there's another aspect of God's faithfulness where he remains faithful to his own perfection as he interacts with that unfaithfulness as well, all right? So I want to read this um, so I get it correct. Because God must remain faithful in maintaining his holiness, we are separated from him because we are unholy. Because God remains faithful in carrying out his perfect justice, he has to punish our sin and unfaithfulness and his perfect righteousness and his perfect righteous judgment and wrath. But because God also remains or must also remain faithful to his perfect love for his own people, he must provide a way for them to be reconciled to him because they cannot do it themselves. We cannot be reconciled to him ourselves. So how does he do this without being unfaithful to any of his attributes? The answer is Christ. God is perfect justice. God in his perfect justice has rightfully determined that all men are sinners and deserving of his perfect righteous judgment. In his perfect love, he sends his perfect son as the perfect sacrifice down to earth to live the perfect life that man could not live. And he died the death that we deserved for our sin, incurring God's perfect wrath. And because Jesus was truly man, he's able to be sufficient sacrifice in the place of us, mankind. And because he was truly God, his sacrifice can be sufficient for us for eternity. Then he arose again from the grave three days later, and he is now sitting at the right hand of God. Now, let's look at how Jesus is the ultimate example of what perfect faithfulness looks like from us to God. All right? Gene, can you hit me with the next verse, please? Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in God's house. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast 
our confidence and boasting in our hope. Now here's the picture. God has built a house. He is the owner and sovereign. For things to run smoothly and well in God's house, it must be run by God's will, God's rules. So what he needs is a perfect representative to stand in his place to rule with God's will and not with his own. Okay? He requires a representative that is trustworthy and that is reliable to carry out God's will perfectly. Now Moses was faithful as a servant, which means that he was faithful in communicating God's law to the Israelites. But Jesus was faithful over God's house as a son, which means that he's in charge of God's house. Okay? While Moses and all others, including us, are only servants in the house. Why is that? Because God chose Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, to be the means of salvation for all of us, including Moses. All the people that would eventually believe in him. All right? Now in that house God has built, and that he's appointed his son to be charge over, in charge over, he has also trusted us, to us, his servants, certain responsibilities to carry out according to his will. Moses carried out uh, the will and his responsibilities to the Israelites, and Jesus carried out his responsibilities in his life, his death, and his resurrection to save us. Right? So now we come back to Galatians 5 where we started. And it begins with, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So my question for you all here on this late night is, are you living in God's house? Have you agreed with God that your unfaithfulness and your sin towards him and others is rightfully deserving of being left out of his house for eternity? Have you repented of your sin and of your unfaithfulness and trusted Christ's righteousness and faithfulness on your behalf to be the only power that can allow you into the house? Or are you trusting in something else? If not, if you haven't done any of those things and you're not in the house, then I urge you to do so before one of life's storms carries you away and you're unable to do so. If you are living in God's house, though, already... I want to ask you, are you seeing the fruit in your life, the fruit of the Spirit? Tonight, we're specifically talking about faithfulness. In other words, are you trustworthy and reliable in carrying out the responsibilities that God has given you as one of his many servants in Christ, through the Holy Spirit and for God's glory? If the Lord has given you a husband or a wife, Are you faithful in carrying out your responsibilities to honor, love, and cherish them? If the Lord has given you the gift of children, are you faithful to love, honor, cherish, and raise them in the fear of the Lord? If you're single, are you faithful in carrying out your responsibilities and using your time, talent, and gifts that the Lord has given you to serve Him and His church faithfully? If you have been given the ability to work, 
Are you trustworthy and reliable, reliable in carrying out your responsibilities to your employer? If your child, if you're a child or a youth, have you been found trustworthy or reliable in honoring your parents? If you're a citizen, are you faithful to pray for your leaders and give to Caesar what is due to Caesar? If you're a member of a church, this church, have you been faithful to love your church body as best as you can? If you're inside of God's house because you were saved through his faithfulness, have you been faithful to tell this to people outside of the house, how they can come into the house? If you're able to do all of these things without missing any, then you are amazing. If not, though, and you're like me, and you've fallen short in many of these areas, then you should not be discouraged because it takes time for a tree to grow before it bears fruit. What I'm not telling you to do, though, is just to work harder or to be more faithful. If you were to try to produce the fruits of faithfulness in your own way and in your own strength, it would be just as pointless if you were walking down the street tomorrow, you saw an empty tree with no fruit on it, and you went home, you drove to the grocery store, you bought as much fruit as you wanted, and then you went back to the tree, you laced it up with some glue, and you tried to throw it at the tree, saying, you're going to bear my fruit tonight. can't do it in your own strength. Instead, Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. And this is because the Holy Spirit always leads us in a direction from ourself and our own strength and towards abiding in Christ. And that is how we bear fruit, including the fruit of faithfulness. What's the next verse, Gene? John 15. Well, this verse is about abiding in Christ. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The difference between trying to bear fruit in our own strength and by, trying to be, or by uh, living and abiding by Christ is that your standard will always undermine God's will while Christ's standard will always align with it. That's why he's over the house. That's why he's in charge. 
So how do we abide in Him? We have to spend time with Him. That means things you can think of, being in His Word, prayer. I like what Spurgeon says when they asked him which one is more important. And he says, which one is more important to your breathing, inhaling or exhaling? We have to spend time with God. We have to study Jesus. We have to know him. We have to follow him. We have to remain in him and stay attached to him as the branches are attached to the vine. We have to cling to him as though he is the one giving us our life so that all that flows from and through us is him, is Christ. As we spend time with Christ in his word, we can see what Christ said and what Christ did and what he is doing and what he will do. And as our minds are renewed and refreshed in him, the Holy Spirit can help us put to death everything that opposes him and to put into practice everything that comes from him. As your life begins to overflow with an understanding and love and appreciation for God's faithfulness to you through Jesus, then your natural response will be to behave in the ways that are trustworthy and reliable in your relationship to Christ. And this will also overflow into your relationships with others as his representative here on earth. All right? Uh, Final story. Clarence Jordan, 1940s. Now we're in Georgia. Anybody like the South? All right. Well, it would have been hard in this time. (laughs) Okay. 1940s, Clarence Jordan has two PhDs. He has one in agriculture, and he has one in Greek and Hebrew. Some people say that he was so brilliant that he could have done anything he wanted to do with his life. What he chose to do was to serve poor people, both blacks and whites at this time on his farm, which you can probably realize that in the 1940s didn't go over too well with many people in the town at that time. So he continued to farm and let them live on the farm, and they shared and they lived as a community together. For about 14 years, the people in the town tried to stop what they were doing because they wanted to follow the laws of segregation. And what happened is they would come to the farm and they would slash the employees uh, and the workers' tires and they would throw things and they would boycott in the town and they did that for about 14 years. Finally, when nothing happened and they couldn't stop Clarence Jordan uh, from running the farm, the KKK got up and they went to the home and they lit every house on the farm on fire. The only house they left was Clarence Jordan's And that's because they filled it with bullets, trying to kill him. The next day, most families left that were living on the farm, except for one family. And only Clarence was on the farm that day. So a reporter came to see what was going on. As a reporter was talking to Clarence Jordan, the reporter asked him, Hey, how's everything going? Clarence Jordan continues to do his cleaning and planting and restoring of the farm. He says, how are you doing now? What happened? Can you tell us? How do you feel? What's going on? He still gets no response. 
What he doesn't know is that he's hearing, or Clarence heard the voices of the people who were under the KKK sheets the night before, and some of the people even belonged to the church, and one of the people was this reporter. Finally, after the reporter didn't get any response, he finally says, So, Mr. Jordan, you have two of those PhDs. How do you feel that this all went? Do you feel that it was successful? How successful do you feel that it went? And that's when Clarence Jordan stops planting, and he says, about as successful as the cross. And he says, I don't think you understand what we're doing here. We're not about success. We're about faithfulness. Now, the point, or what I want to show you here, is very simple, that Clarence realized that there were good church folk who were helping to burn down the homes of families, right? They probably thought that they were following the law in their own strength, but abiding in Christ would have been different, right? So there's a difference between uh, living in your own strength and living uh, in in a set of laws versus abiding in Christ. And the second thing I want to show you is that even though we are faithful, it doesn't necessarily mean that we can demand a certain outcome. We can't tell God how things are going to turn out when we are faithful. God has already promised that all things will work out for the good of those for those who love him. So it's up to us to remain faithful now and up to God to orchestrate the success to what he deems as what is best. So as you consider your responsibilities in the Lord, the responsibilities that he's giving you, given you as a servant in his house, may you all carry them out responsibly through the power of the Holy Spirit until the day that we meet our Lord and we can hear our master say, well done, good and faithful servant.